Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhard, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. My name is Rachel Kushner, and I'm a writer. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Life as art, in a way I also understand the life as art principle or notion as it was explored by some people I'm really interested in from the 70s, like Tichingsie's art, uh, Living Outside for a year, never going into any structures. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week, we're talking to the writer Rachel Kushner. Over the years, Rachel has befriended and written about many artists. But few people merge writing about art and writing about life the way she does. She's deeply interested in memorializing the culture around the art, the conversations, the characters, the tall tales. That's how she was able to bring the New York art world of the 70s to life in her 2013 novel, The Flamethrowers, which was a National Book Award finalist. In her new collection of essays, The Hard Crowd, Rachel writes about Richard Prince, Raymond Pettibone, and Jeff Koons, as vividly as she writes about her deep personal passion for motorcycles and muscle cars. I thought, you know, because there's so many artists and art-related people who listen to this podcast in particular, that maybe we could talk a little bit about that. There are so many artists whom you mentioned living with. I mean, I, you know, Diana Thader, whose work is in your, in your home or was at some point, Chris Williams, uh, Richard Prince, who, and who come up over the course of these essays in the hard crowd. But your own background seems to have been much more musical. At least that seems to be some of the first artistic experiences that you had that you describe vividly in some of these essays are around music and musical performances really as a teenager. And I would be very curious to hear a little bit about that arc, early creative experiences, formative creative experiences, and maybe how those came to, arrived at, or ended up in dialogue with later interest in the visual arts. Sure. That's a great question. Well, actually, I would say my interest in music uh, was longstanding, and I use the past tense because I I don't follow popular music anymore. You know, I mean, like every kid, I was interested in music. I have an older brother, which I think can make a profound difference in terms of having an older sibling, in terms of having access to not just pop culture, but different subcultures, you know? So I had an older brother who was bringing home punk records. Like in the 1970s, he was listening to bands like, 999, you know, and um, the Sex Pistols. And so I was interested 
in music and you can kind of almost pretend you're a teenager when you're 10 years old by the albums that you select and play and you feel like you're in this stream of the present tense that the music is evoking. And I was very interested in that. Um, at the same time, I would say I was also interested in art or more interested in the kind of feeling and ambiance of the art world because I'd had some exposure to it as a kid through my aunt, Dee Halleck, who lived at Henry Street Settlement and taught filmmaking there on the Lower East Side and was friends with a lot of other artists. She continues to make art now. Um, she's more like a radical video activist, video maker, and was a mentee of the filmmaker Shirley Clark, who you know lived at the Chelsea Hotel and choreographed these events on the roof. And I heard about a lot of that through my aunt and met a lot of interesting people through her. And it might've been originally through her that I was interested in these worlds of people kind of making and doing. But, you know, and then as a kid, like I was into Stuart Davis. I had a Stuart Davis poster on my wall. Then later on, um, and growing, and then growing up in San Francisco, you know, we had the Museum of Modern Art it was on Van Ness. You know, my friend and I would cut school and go into MoMA, um, SF MoMA, and, you know, and look at this Matisse painting together. And actually that detail ended up in a novel of mine, The Mars Room, because, you know, we draw from life to create a new world that is parallel to life, but we have to furnish it with scenes and evidence from a reality that we know to feel true. When I moved to New York City as a young person in like mid-late 20s, the first people that I met there that I felt some connection to and seemed to kind of constitute a world that I could learn from and be a part of was artists. And that was mostly through uh, people that were showing at Feature Gallery, Hudson, yeah, and Hudson, I became friends with Hudson through my friend Alex Brown, who is a painter, whose kind of memorial is in this book, The Hard Crowd, because he died two years ago, and that was very sad, but also an occasion to think about him as a personality and the world that he introduced me to. Even though I didn't live in New York anymore, he was friends with all these interesting people who showed with him at feature and in a certain way that was my entree to the art mm. world was um through alex and i mean it's a strange thing to ask but could you describe a little bit what that felt like the kind of feature gallery sort of group i mean you describe it when you describe moving around with alex right that he kind of knew everyone in some weird way or it seemed like he knew everyone even though he wasn't in the mix because uh, he had moved out of town. But. Well, yeah, I mean, well, first I would say Alex knew a lot of different kinds of people because he was also in this kind of legendary um, New York hardcore band called Gorilla Biscuits. So he had like multiple streams of existence that he didn't like to mix. He liked to keep them separate. And when you were out with him, you would see that like people from the hardcore world thought he was theirs, you know, they didn't even really know he was an artist and his art world friends didn't understand that he was, 
in this band that would sell out like large stadium shows in a matter of minutes. And even after he died, they said, yeah, I didn't really understand that Alex had this music life. It's kind of funny. But in terms of his artist friends, well, I guess all those people were um, slightly older than I am. And, um, you know, I had I'd just come from San Francisco where I was a bartender and, um, you know, not a rube or a hillbilly, but not really sophisticated yet. And um, those people were quite sophisticated and not just about art, but uh, about music. And they were all readers, I would say, and readers of philosophy. So in a way, this dynamic in one of my novels, The Flamethrowers, where the narrator is sort of quiet and drowned out by voices and chooses to be quiet because she's listening, in, in a certain sense, that dynamic's not unfamiliar to me because I learned a lot from the people that I met in the art world and kind of just wanted to absorb the discourse. I mean, I guess what I liked at that time about the art world in New York in the nineties was that for me, it seemed like um, a social world that you could step into that had a discourse that was actually somewhat rigorous. Like there was a Mm -hmm. common set of topics that people engaged in and tarried over. And I've never been somebody who just wanted to, for instance, go to a barbecue on a Sunday and just hang out with some people for the sake of hanging out. I was a little bit more um, hungry. Like I wanted to actually learn something from people and I was done with a more kind of bohemian lifestyle. That's just about hanging out. And so these people, like, even if they were partying, they were like arguing over the baggage of abstract expressionism or arguing about some feature of perspective and Renaissance painting. And I really liked that. Did you, you know, one of the artists you mentioned, actually in an, almost in an aside toward the end of the collection, when you're talking about him, Raymond Pettibone, you say he's a beautiful, I think the line is, you know, who's a beautiful poet, Raymond Pettibone, uh, in talking about the kind of fake poetry of some, both poets and artists. Um, And I was wondering if you came across Raymond in his time, uh, at feature because of course he showed there in the late 80s and early 90s yeah no i mean by the time i was friends with hudson uh raymond was not showing there anymore but yeah i mean i i guess i'm being a bit coy in that segue in the book because right before that i'm kind of painting the scene of this alan ginsburg reading at the ear in that i went to as a teenager yeah, I didn't want to get too specific, but if you are, then I... <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. I mean, um, you know, I, I mean, like, Howl is a very important poem to people of my parents' generation, who they're younger than the beatniks and older than the hippies and caught sort of in between, but their shelves were very much furnished with beatnik poetry and a lot of the like kind of more minor press stuff that was being done at that time. My dad collected it. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go to this Allen Ginsberg reading, you know? And um, I just, it, it went, he started very late. It went on for a very long time. I left slightly demoralized in the pouring rain. Um, and then I say, you know, who's a gifted poet, Raymond Pettibone. Obviously, Raymond Pettibone is also 
a gifted, I don't know what the word is, archivist or connoisseur who obviously reads voraciously. A reader. A yeah. reader, but not just a reader, a reader who selects, well, he he just can choose a phrase and match it with a movement, be it a wave or a figure, whatever he's drawing, the two, the way they work together, in a sense, makes the phrase he's selected his, even if he mm-hmm. didn't write it. So I'm kind of saying the poet is also, you know, the one who is bringing out, showcasing and framing language, l- language or a mood. And, um, and then I quote the, this drawing of his that um, I just think is so funny. I really love it of a woman standing on um, a balcony or ledge nude and underneath it says, I will my body to my father. And I, I was actually talking to the um, gallerist, Sean Kaylee Regan, who I've known for quite a long time. And I mentioned that and she said, I own that drawing. <laughs> but you know, yeah, Raymond is a special case. But I think I did. I did yeah. meet him once. I've met him a few times because he would, you know, I'd be invited to a dinner and he was there. And when uh, my son Remy was a baby, I brought him to a an opening dinner. I can't remember who it was for. And Raymond was there, and he looked at the baby and said, "Is he getting good grades?" <laughs> but you know what you're. What you're responding to is actually one of the things that I like that people don't often realize about Raymond. It's just extremely funny. You know, there's an extremely dry sense of humor. It was hilarious. Yes, my baby was getting good grades. <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, if, if tracing the, the, the kind of arc of the, of the book that, you know, there were early experiences with artists. And then, of course, there were relationships with artists as you continued to grow as a writer and and um and I'm curious you know artists where you know you either wrote catalog essays or you became invested in their practices in some way that became meaningful to you uh, not only as a novelist obviously art plays such a, a crucial role in the flamethrowers um but I'm curious about some of those relationships I mean there's a long Coons essay in in the hard crowd or at least there is a, a substantial Coons essay in the hard crowd but I know that you wrote for art forum and and I'm curious about some of those um, you know, what drew you to certain artists or not others? And was it really, is it aesthetic or tied to the narrative of an artist's life as much as it is tied to the specific objects that that artist produces? Gosh, that's a really good question, but it's sort of hard for me to sort out a clear answer to it. I mean, I've had long friendships with some artists that I've never written about. So it's not necessarily the friendship that is the grounds that launches me to write about somebody. And a lot of the people I've written about, actually, I didn't include in this book. I sort of the like the organizing principle of the book was such that it was sort of about tone and resonance uh, and probably... I would do another book at a later date that was more focused on art. And I guess maybe um, an element of that is that writing about art is kind of for a pretty specific audience. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that it is like, as I said before, I do believe it is a discourse and that it's 
mostly for those who are interested in that discourse. And mm. this book was kind of more I, like anybody can get into reading an essay about, I don't know, an illegal motorcycle road race. And, Absolutely. and so then Jeff Koons becomes, you know, as I say in the book, and th that was something that I wrote for uh, his show at the Guggenheim um, and Scott Rothkop asked me to contribute. And I've known Scott for a long time uh, and, and he's a good friend. And I, I, I was interested in thinking about these kind of sequence in Koons's oeuvre of the luxury and degradation reproductions of liquor advertisements and the weird tchotchkes that he also made that were kind of like um, the swag that you could order that would come with, you know, these weird train sets and the kinds of things that do show up in um, thrift stores, not the Jeff Koons version of them, but the real ones. Right. Right. And um, I was interested in thinking about how those advertisements, like, you know, I could go for something Gordon's, how those work at the time he made them when they were new. Like now they have a kind of allure because they capture not so much an era, but the way that era tried to make itself look in advertising. But like it, it's more radical to me what people do when it isn't from a distance, when they aren't sort of capitalizing on the, um, on the uh, kind of kitsch charm of what an ad looked like in 1980. But when he actually made them in 1980, what were they? They were sort of weirder. In any case, I included that Coons essay in this collection, partly because Coons is the artist that uh, people who have no participation um, or acknowledgement or interest in the art world know. And then that gave me a sort of um, occasion to revise the essay a lot and think about that aspect of him and his popularity. Like, you know, my son one day when he was about five, we were walking somewhere and he described, uh, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was a car. He goes, look, that car is balloon dog blue. And I thought that's, you know, it's a certain type of child that's been exposed to art and has been taken sure. to a museum, but that, there was a category of color called balloon dog blue tells you that um, this is something else. If Jeff Koons has now made his way into the imaginary of children. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's definitely, definitely says something both about Jeff and about your, your son. Um, He's a Finnish fetishist because we're into classic cars. So balloon dog blue also oh, means got it, of course. there's some kind of metallic paint being used <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I want to talk about some of the sort of vehicular uh, interests in a second. I, I was just that, you know, that there's a discussion in that Kuhn's essay of the level of abstraction of advertisement, um, you know, sort of as it gets, as it tries to reach different audiences, the kind of the language becomes more and more abstract. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've thought about in other contexts, or if that was sort of the, the genesis of that idea that that looking at these reproductions, if you will, artworks, and seeing how the language changes depending on the demographic that's being targeted. I found that to be, it's not something I had really ever thought about, but of course I encounter it all the time because the advertisement geared toward me is probably tuned to whatever degree of abstraction I'm best um, positioned to receive. 
Um, and, and I'm just curious if that's an idea that's floated around for you more uh, than just in the Kuhn's essay. Well, it was actually Kuhn's himself originally who made that observation, which I thought was interesting. I mean, the, like aesthetics of maybe what we call naturalism and realism, which are slightly different depending on who's defining them, tend to be the terrain of the popular. And the way that meaning is freighted more explicitly and certain aesthetics, let's say, of luxury telegraphed to a popular audience are not going to be subtle. Um, and, you know, for instance, like the Getty Villa, the way that it used to look, Joan Didion uh, wrote this famous essay about it in the White Album, which I mentioned in the Coons essay. And what interests me about the way that she writes about the Getty Villa is her conclusion. And her conclusion is that there is a, a kind of fundamental contract between the very wealthy and what she describes as the people who distrust them the least. So kind of like rehearsing the glory of the Roman empire and filling a vestibule with like full color statues is a language from Didion's more snobbish perspective that, you know, the, the coarser stratum of social class will appreciate the most. What Kuhn's is saying is maybe along those lines, I don't know if it's replicated in reality, but the his idea that there was some system to these advertisements interests me. And I think there is some, there's going to be some truth to it, whether it's in the ads themselves or in his analysis of the ads, what he's pointing to as a phenomenon is definitely worth thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's right. It's coming back to me now. Of course, I, it's, it's him on the trains up from Harlem downtown, as he describes it, in which he sees the changing, um, the changing advertisements and their, their, their level of abstraction, as he puts it. Maybe we can talk a little bit about, of course, artists populate this uh, collection of essays, but you just mentioned classic cars and, uh, and, and, you know, there's a great essay about illegal motorcycle racing. And I'm curious about the interest in, vehicles and racing and movement. And if that's, um, you know, that really does play out. It also seems like a scene of some um, self-realization, certainly in that essay about motorcycle racing, this sort of play off of the mechan older mechanic boyfriend as someone whom the race kind of overcomes. Um, well, I've always been somebody who was interested in, I guess, cars and motorcycles and not just the vehicles themselves, but the culture. I mean, always, you know, since I was really little, that's how I was. And I guess part of it is some degree of influence. Like you have to be exposed to it to get into it. And um, before we moved to San Francisco, when I was 10, we lived in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, we were fairly close to uh, a track that ran drag races. And I was just interested in the personalities and the culture and the way also that these aesthetics, I mean, there, I think there's an art component too, because the way these aesthetics leaked into the art world in the seventies and eighties, I was somehow aware of that. Like I knew who Von Dutch was, you know, certainly 
and Big Daddy Ross. I mean, like we had the t-shirts, you know, and there was an idea that like custom car culture and the way that it influenced visual culture generally, like cartoons and, you know, it, the, the kind of proto meme world of memes, like the kinds of images that you would see and that all interested me, but also mechanical know-how interested me. I guess the sad irony of that is that I'm not really interested in obtaining mechanical know-how, but I have a ton of respect for people who have it. Um, My father has it. He's just, he's not a mechanic by trade. He's a scientist, but um, he has that touch with cars and vehicles. And um, maybe because we were broke, he was always like rebuilding a motor so that we'd have a car to go to the grocery store in. But that kind of knowledge, I just respected it a lot. I liked being around people who knew how to drive in tune and rebuild fast cars. I don't know. It's just how I'm built. Part of it is like what you're attracted to. And that's what I was attracted to. So when I was old enough and on my own, I bought a Moto Guzzi Italian motorcycle and um, so then I started dating somebody who was a Motoguzzi mechanic. I mean, it's just, if you're going to ride the bike, you need access to people who uh, can tune the carburetors for you. So I guess it just built from there. And I was living in San Francisco where there was a kind of robust counterculture of people into motorcycles. And I'd grown up with people that were really into motorcycles. Like, you know, my closest friend in high school was riding a Yamaha YZ that was totally not street legal, didn't have passenger pegs, didn't have a headlight, didn't have a license plate, and would pick me up for school and give me a ride on his bike. And like, you know, when we had vacation time, he would be building like dune buggies and sand rails. And so it's just around that world um, a lot. So it's kind of deeply familiar to me and something that I haven't sort of matured out of ever been able to let go of. And it continues now based on what you, I mean, it sounds like you are still an enthusiast of classic cars at the very least or both or. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I have a classic car, the one that's on the cover of my book, but you know, and it's like, it's totally chaotic to drive that car at this point. Um, when it's, when it's the nineties and you've got a 64 Ford, you live in a world where like in San Francisco, you know, I mean, it's, it, the stakes were sort of low in terms of like the cool factor of living there at that time. You know, it, it wasn't a very ambitious lifestyle. So uh, let's just acknowledge that. But inside of that, there were a lot of really interesting cars and bikes and people had very cool stuff. And so it was a culture in a way that I miss, like um, just, you know, on my street, my neighborhood, people had chargers, challengers, they had weird old cars. They had like, um, you know, German Democratic Republic military motorcycles. People had cool stuff. But that is now a good 30 years ago. So to drive a 64 Ford, let's say in 1993, is a different thing than driving a 64 Ford in 2020. The car is, let's do the math. It's almost 50 years old. 50 years old, yeah. So, you know, so when I drive it now, like I was out with that car on Sunday with my son and I got a new gas tank because my old gas tank had sediment in it. And my new mechanic, Luis, who's a very cool guy, only works on vintage cars, uh, had installed the tank for me, but he hadn't put in a new seal. 
and gas tank leaked like an entire tank of gas into my garage. So, you know, it's just things like it's that. Just, yeah. It's kind of, got it's it. kind of ongoing. Yeah. I have sort of two questions that are more impressions that I don't, doesn't need like a serious analysis, but what was happening in San Francisco at that time that had all these, as you said, kind of, I mean, unambitious people is, I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, people who were just living their lives in a relaxed fashion, but also had this kind of extreme, uh, extremely specific set of sensibilities, you know, like when you talk about the cars, the motorcycles, like, what is that, you know? Such a good question. I mean, it it was like you describe um, a set of people with very specific sensibilities. I don't know. It was early nineties bohemia, um, which is very different than like people in New York city and Williamsburg of the early aughts. There's this discourse about the hipster. This is not that that's those people are a little bit younger that like kind of trucker hat thing. And I think that people who, there were people who came from elsewhere to San Francisco in a way that was like a pilgrimage. If they came from, let's say, like Ohio or Connecticut, um, I knew people who were involved in the car scene who came from rural Connecticut and who had themselves worked on and come from families who worked in like textile mills, like people who came from more kind of um, Rust Belt backgrounds, people who came from, I had friends who came from Ohio, whose family had worked for Fisher Body or GM. And somehow San Francisco to them seemed like the kind of open vista of a more tolerant society. Maybe it's not like moving to New York where you really have to have specific ambitions to join like the art world or the publishing world or the music world. It's like you could just have a regular job and move to San Francisco, but it was a kind of tolerant free for all society for people being from there is different because for me, like I come from a more kind of a towny culture. Um, of those, like, I don't know the neighborhood that I'm from the sunset, somebody compared it to Staten Island. I think that in a certain way, that's somewhat apt. It's kind of like being from Staten Island. If you're a New Yorker, you know, my friends never left San Francisco um, really. I mean, now they've been forced to um, because no, no one can afford to live there. But it wasn't a culture where people like go off to college and then go to some big city and get a job. They stay in San Francisco. So it's kind of the oscillation between those two for me, I guess. Like the city was the horizon line of the things that you could do. I mean, I guess it was an atmosphere in which it would have been considered pretty square to want to like make art and have an opening or move to New York city. I mean, people made fun of me for wanting to move to New York, wanting to do something else. It was kind of like sleep till three party, hang out, work on cars, do it was living in the present. Sounds beautiful. Actually, in many ways. I mean, I say that of course, looking, looking at it from where we are now. I mean, I guess what's really interesting to me is that, in both the your description of the art world and that world that you're describing, there's a kind of 
intense interest in a set of related problems that a group of people have decided to sort of, and it's not even maybe problems is the wrong word, but let's say there's shared interests that I think you took pleasure in participating or, you know, participating in or observing or something like that. Like there are these, and it feels to me increasingly that those kinds of things, which you describe so well, are actually quite rare now. It's hard to find them, right? It's easy to find them maybe on the internet, but the idea of a kind of the art world isn't like that anymore, right? Like it's not, it's not an ongoing conversation about a bunch of shared philosophical underlying problems. It's kind of everyone having, you know, each artist standing for him or herself in a way, you know, and having her own audience and etc. you know, and, and the galleries are their own communities, but they're less communities than structures and same for the museums. And so that just feels like something that in this conversation and in, in, in your essay, in the, in the collection of essays, The Hard Crowd, you're, you're exploring, you know, these communities. Well, yeah, I appreciate those thoughts. I think for me, it was just what I knew. But then I kind of perhaps took what I knew and, you know, I was informed by it and influenced by it when I went to think about the art world of the 1970s, as I depicted it in the flamethrowers. Um, and there's a lot of different streams of influence there. I mean, there's just the literal real thing, which is being friends with the artists um, who were part of the discourse that I attempt to, you know, recreate and depict in my own book. But then there's also San Francisco, as I'm trying to nail it down, and you're asking apt questions about it, as a, almost a kind of like laboratory of life as art in a way I also understand the life as art principle or notion as it was explored by some people I'm really interested in from the seventies, like, um, Tiching Sie, mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. his name correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I knew a bunch of people who knew him and they always have referred to him as Sammy, his art Tiching Sie's art of, for instance, uh, living outside for a year, never going into any structures. My cousin was old friends with him and said, you know, he was shot at, he was sleeping on the, um, on the uh, catwalk of a construction site. He was doing this, he was doing that. So I knew about him, you know, and then the weird, um, slightly tragic in a way, but also rather interesting phenomenon of Lee Lozano deciding to never speak to women again. So I, I kind of brought out and into the book my own feelings about what that is when a group of people are doing it each individually, but in such a committed way that there is no show afterward. There's no catalog. It's just what you do. So like I had a friend in San Francisco who went to mortuary school on credit cards and then declared bankruptcy and then um, got a job as a mortician. And she was doing that as a kind of art practice um, and then later she moved to New York City and couldn't get a job at a mortuary because it turns out that the mortuaries are all controlled by these Italian families and it's a kind of guild system. You can't just show up from nowhere with a resume and get hired. You have to be, you know, you got to be from Staten Island. You got to be part of the Italian right. families. She was shut out and she got a job uh, selling sports tickets at Madison Square Garden. And then that became her performance. She wore a suit and carried a briefcase and went to Madison Square Garden every day. And that was just her thing. And to me, she was an artist. 
there were people in San Francisco. There was a girl who only wore postal carrier blue. Like that's all she wore and never went out of character. So I guess I'm just looking back at this time as a time when people were doing things like that with no careerist aspirations. aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about comparing it to now and saying things like, oh, that can't exist anymore. It's not possible or you don't find it. And I think it's because I'm not really interested in the discourse of romanticizing as singular or not to be repeated what happened long ago. I would say that it was singular, like things emerge out of their time and are product of their time. Like I'm a product of a very specific generation, I'd say, not to be recreated probably, but I'm not interested in kind of naysaying the present by upholding the past as an example that's not reflected now. Mm-mm. So, so maybe we just, the last thing is really just talk about the collection as a collection. You mentioned early on that you were thinking about it as a, as a tonal, uh, you know, tonal connections. And maybe you would say something more about the sort of organizational principle for you. When I decided to put this together, I wanted it to be, to feel like uh, one movement for the reader. You open the book and begin to read and not be um, just a kind of random assortment or a complete catalog. I don't like reading an essay collection when you feel like things got stuffed in there because they exist. Um, And I also didn't like the organization of subheadings by subject matter. It just seemed too arbitrary to me. I mean, I have a lot of essays and I only included maybe a quarter of them in this book. I wanted them to feel like they belonged in the book. There was a place that was somehow made for them by the organizing principle. And um, I I always like this phrase, the hard crowd, which comes from um, a cream song called White Room that I used to listen to over and over again as a teenager. And it's that phrase that is um, at the party, she was kindest in the hard crowd. I don't know if it's kindest or kindness doesn't really matter, but like, it's an interesting phrase. I've been thinking about it because my book is about to come out in French also. And um, it's basically untranslatable. It's very hard to explain to somebody because the tough crowd means um, an audience that's resistant to what you're trying to offer them. The hard crowd is something else because it implies that there is a bigger crowd and that the hard crowd is a subset of that. And it's like the people most committed, like willing to sacrifice or forfeit for the purpose of X, for the purpose of what. So I liked the phrase and I had used it uh, for an essay that I wrote for the artist, Richard Prince, who's a friend of mine. And he really liked the phrase. So it kind of was like in a dialogue between the two of us. But then when I went to select essays, um, I guess I chose, well, I, I knew that the book would begin with the first thing I ever published, which is a pretty long account of my own experience of racing in the Cabo 1000 on a Ninja Kawasaki street bike and what happened with that race. And then from there, I wanted the end point from that essay to kind of be like the resonance at the end of a song, like the after image of a song and then take up in the next essay at the beginning with that same sort of resonance, like tonally going from one thing to the next. 
and not like, these are my essays on car culture and these are my essays on film. Everything is much more of a piece for me. And then the book started to seem like it was actually an account of who I am and how I've lived. And I didn't really anticipate that, that things would come back in different forms and start to fill in more like panorama. And then the title essay at the end, I wrote specifically for the book. And it's, I guess for me, a kind of, maybe it's a little bit arrogant to call it this, but it's a kind of manifesto or an attempt to account, or as I say, to tally who I knew and what I've seen and why I write fiction about who I knew and what I've seen and what my aesthetics are and et cetera. I mean, it's also a send off at the end, you know, I mean, it explicitly ends with, you know, an encouragement to, for all of us to make our own memories, right. To, to form our own relationships and have our own experience. I found that very powerful as a kind of final move in the book um, to push the reader out into the world after having spent in my case, you know, the, the, the entire day uh, in your world. Um, and so I found that to be very effective final, final move. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I, um, well, because that essay was um, almost, you know, whole cloth excerpted in The New Yorker, I've already had a lot of reactions to it. And it actually seems to have garnered, maybe I would say a bigger reaction than I, anything else I've written. I've never had this sort of, um, like I got hundreds of letters from people who had read it in the magazine. And um, a lot of them seemed like not maybe regular New Yorker readers, but people who'd been turned on to it because they were from the music scene or they were from San Francisco and also people of a certain age. And um, it was satisfying to me to see that my invitation at the end for them to quote unquote bore me with their memories was um, something that people took to heart. And I don't mean that I was eager for them to catalog their experience for me, but more that I was glad to see them do it for themselves. And I think that it's a difficult thing to describe what it's like, even though we all experience it, which is what it's like to be the archivist of your own memories all the time while you're also flowing through the streams of the present tense and thinking about the future. Like you're living in the world, but you're also minding and looking after past worlds and people that you will never see again because they're gone. So if I allowed other people to sort of philosophize about the their own memories and the strange disjuncture between living in the present and also simultaneously always being in this asynchronous space of your own past, then, um, then I feel satisfied. Well, I think you have, and I think that's also a really nice place to end. That's a beautiful, beautiful last uh, note from you. So um, thank you so much, Rachel. This was a really lovely conversation and uh, it's just great to have you here oh that's so cool thank you lucas dialogues is produced by david zwerner you can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidzwerner.com slash dialogues and if you liked what you heard please rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it really does help other people discover the show i'm lucas werner thanks so much for listening and i hope you join us again next time